We do. We run things. Penrose spoke soothingly, exposing his badly bitten nails, as if trying to present himself as vulnerable, but sincere. Years ago, people took for granted that the future meant more leisure. That's true for the less skilled and less able, those who aren't net contributors to society. Such as... Poets, traffic wardens, ecologists... Penrose gestured dismissively, and struck my wine glass with his hand. He settled it on the table, embarrassed by his clumsiness, and continued. I'm being unfair, but I know you agree with me. For the talented and ambitious, the future means work, not play. Depressing. No recreation at all. Only of a special kind. Talk to senior people at Eden Olympia. They've gone beyond leisure. Playing around with balls of various shapes and sizes, Penrose tripped over his tongue and paused to flex his lips. That's something they left behind in childhood. Work is where they find their real fulfillment. Running an investment bank, designing an airport, bringing on stream a new family of antibiotics. If their work is satisfying, people don't need leisure in the old-fashioned sense. No one ever asks what Newton or Darwin did to relax, or how Bach spent his weekends. At Edna Olympia, work is the ultimate play, and play the ultimate work. There's one thing missing... All I see is a lot of office buildings and car parks in a faked-up landscape. What happens to the law and the church? Where are the moral compass bearings that hold everything together? They fall away. We shed them. Like that brace you got rid of once you could stand on your own legs. Hello, hello, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Alpha Bunga Bunga is myself, Alex Hochuli, and George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe. If this is your first time with us, because maybe some mate of yours forwarded on the episode to you, consider following us on Facebook or on Twitter. We're at BungaCast in both those places. If you like what you hear, uh, maybe consider dropping us a review on iTunes or Facebook or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd greatly appreciate it. This is a free episode, what you're hearing here. We also produce original content only for our patrons. You get two exclusive episodes per month if you sign up for $5 at patreon.com slash bungacast. Patrons $10 and up also get access to live chats and our special reading club. Right, this week something a little bit different. It's always a challenge to characterize the mood of the age. One novelist who consistently managed to inspire reflections on these matters was J.G. Ballard. To the extent that Ballardian has become a commonly used adjective for a certain alienated urban sensibility. Today, George and Phil talk to a contemporary author who has channeled Ballard to create something unique. Here, George and Phil are talking to Simon Sellers, author of Applied Ballardianism. Today we're talking about Simon Sellars' book, Applied Ballardianism, and we're delighted to have Simon with us. Hi, Simon, and welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. So we, I said on Twitter, and I don't mind saying again, that this was probably the best book that I read all of last year in 2019. It was published in 2018, but I read it in 2019. Um, it's not only gripping with... Um, insights and wonderfully stimulating ideas and thoughts i'm tripping off virtually every other page um it's got just these brilliant moments in it like this completely surreal account of uh, pacific tourism uh, these brilliant accounts of the overwhelming banality of academic conferences 
Um, it opens with this wonderful um, account of the rapid degeneration of cyberculture, which is particularly um, striking for those who live through it, I suppose, and particularly from the retrospective vantage point of um, the age of social media. And it's also, and I don't know if this was intended, but it's also tremendously funny. Um, there's because of all the odd encounters that the um, protagonist goes through while being depressed or alienated or on drugs in various settings, particularly academic conferences with all of the kind of lunacy that happens there. So there's so much to talk about. It's hard to know where to begin, um, not least because the book ranges far beyond um, J.G. Ballard. It's also, I think it's a book that's hard to classify because in the manner of uh, the great man himself, um, I th the way I understand your book, Simon, is that it's a fictionalized memoir of the disintegration of a doctoral thesis on J.G. Ballard, the science fiction author, and that this, um, this uh, kind of... Um, disintegrating doctoral thesis happens in the midst of also the crumbling relationship and this leads the protagonist to become to go on um, travel excursions around these bizarre tourist spots in pacific islands which still bear the scars of the island hopping war um, between the japanese and americans during the second world war as well as the netherlands as well as britain as well as um, um recounting uh, experiences from melbourne so there's a lot packed in um but is that uh, would you say that's a, a just summary of um, of what the book's about? Yes, I I think so. I mean, you're right to say it's hard to classify. I don't really know how to classify it myself, and people always ask me what what sort of book it is. Uh, the, the book at 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 its heart, the book is a fictionalized memoir of my time uh, as an academic. I did do a PhD on J. G. Ballard. Um, I was at university for a number of years. Uh, I was trying to make an academic career. And so the book is in part about my failure to make that academic career and uh, also at some level the failure of what I found to be my interpretations of Ballard um, because, you know, as a sort of young idealistic academic who thought he'd unlocked the key to the universe really. And so this book was about the sort of... Uh, um, the account of the unravelling of those theories and the unravelling of the sort of um, picture I'd built in my mind of Ballard and, and uh, how I came to use him to interpret the world. Um, and so a lot of those incidents that have fed into the book uh, did happen to me in, in real life. Some are heavily fictionalised, some are invented, uh, some are sort of presented verbatim. Um the travel writing aspect was from a different stage of my life when I'd left academia and became a, a travel writer for Lonely Planet and for a number of um, other publications. And so I've sort of conflated those two aspects of my career together in the one narrative because when I was a travel writer, although I obviously loved it, it was a great job, got to travel uh, to a lot of really interesting places and they're all in the book as well. Uh, I was still mourning the loss of my academic self. So it was still a thread that was running through my life. So that's why I sort of chosen to wo uh, weave them together as the one narrative in the book. So if we get then onto the book itself, uh, so it's called Applied Ballardianism, which um, in its, uh, I mean, you know, when it was suggested, um, when I heard about it for the first time and we raised, um, we raised it as uh, as. Uh, 
as a book for us to talk about here on this show on um, Arthur Bunga Bunga, it immediately the uh, the name immediately gripped me um, and was very intriguing. Um, so could you describe what you take Balladian to mean as a descriptor or adjective? And particularly um, for those listeners who might only be superficially acquainted with Ballard stories or the films of his books. Yes. Uh, first of all, I, w- I want to say I'm glad you like the title. Uh, I, I did. I did struggle with what to call the book, and um, I, I originally called it Applied Ballardianism because it was I was sort of parod- parodying the you know standard academic reference texts and so on. So uh, it was kind of a, a parody of that sort of title. Um, and it, it's good that you found it intriguing because some other people have found it off-putting. So obviously I see it as a novel or a work of fiction in some respects, but people read the title and they think it's this uh, straight academic volume on Ballard and so they haven't picked it up. So it's good that you responded to the, to the title. <laughs> yeah. Um, which in one which in one sense fulfills the aim of what I was trying to do, which was presented as this sort of faux academic book on Ballard. But on the other hand, it sort of uh, stopped some people from reading it. But anyway, um, so you asked me about the descriptor Ballardian. I guess um, it the word itself entered the Collins English Dictionary uh, a few years ago. I think around a decade ago. Uh, where it's described as resembling or suggestive of the conditions described in Ballard's novels and stories, especially dystopian modernity, uh, bleak man-made landscapes and the psychological effects of technological, social or environmental developments. I guess that is superficially would describe a Ballardian worldview. I mean, that's really they've they've done a good job in describing that because it's kind of the the main sort of surface level elements of, of Ballard's works. Um, but I guess in in the terms of how I use it in the book, um, the protagonist of the book takes that sort of description to heart and then tries to really uncover, especially the the, the bleak man made landscapes that are in that description which leads to all the the travel around the world, uncovering urban ruins and all of that sort of song and artefacts of war. Um, And he really internalises those sort of psychological effects of of technological developments as well. So I think in part my my book, if we're talking about Ballardianism versus Ballardian, I see the applied Ballardianism aspect of the protagonist taking that description description and trying to live it out in his real life and that's hence where the descent into insanity comes from so um he's he's trying to take that and make it into a worldview or a a sort of design for living that he can enact and hopefully recruit a few other people into um but i think that at its heart the book is really about well it's about the journey of this uh fictionalized academic but it's also about the overwhelming signals that we find from the technological landscape uh internet in particular advertising uh just the multiplication of realities that we find ourselves encountering on a day-to-day basis surveillance cctv all of that feeds into his distorted mind state 
and makes him feel adrift in reality. So I guess that Ballardianism, as it's applied in the book, is about um, the sort of ambivalent or neutral protagonist floating through those various levels of reality and finding out as a sort of experiment what becomes of him. And I guess that's sort of similar to a typical Ballardian protagonist. You think of the, the narrator of Crash, for example, who is a very sort of a neutral character and just allows things to wash over him no matter how crazy or deranged or uh, bizarre they they are. And um, he, became, he becomes this sort of cipher. Uh, and that's similar to how the protagonist of my book functions and obviously which is kind of appropriate because he's a, a character who's studying Ballard and I wasn't really aware though that I was structuring the character that way until it sort of it sort of come yeah. towards the end of the book and I thought okay I've just written a Ballard character <laughs> yeah um it, it, yeah. it comes it comes through quite um quite clearly like that and I think it almost to the extent that the title seems like a play on words that it's here's a here's a Ballardian like protagonist who's who's then is interpreting everything through through this um through this lens and it, it in some ways i think it's really interesting because you sort of said that it's it's set up as this um sort of weird fa- sort of failed doctoral thesis moment um but then the, the the book just shows how clearly this this narrator has um a really deep understanding of both ballard and and and, and the contemporary um environment through through that that kind of lens but i guess the question that i wanted to ask was um i mean do you think that this is like this is this word is overused this ballardian so people talk about orwellian and and kind of you know dash dash this off in a, in quite a, a careless way um do you think that 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 we should be wary of of kind of labeling anything which looks uh, vaguely dystopian as as um ballardian uh, yeah, I think it is overused. I mean, you can go on Twitter and find a lot of people um, mocking the usage of the term Ballardian. Um, I, yeah, look, I think it is overused. I think that's the, the nature of any of these sort of uh, neologisms uh, like Orwellian or Kafkaesque or whatever, uh, is that they come to, well, on the one hand, it's a kind of tribute to the power of the writing that it's so evocative in people's minds that it becomes this sort of shorthand uh, but on the other hand, it sort of um, it, it raises the complexity at the heart of the work as well. So um, and it you know does become open to mockery because it gets so so overused. Uh, I I think there's more to Ballard than than just what has been described in that dictionary definition. Um, there is definitely more complexity to his work than than simply uh, looking at ruined landscapes. So yeah, I do think it's overused, but. As to whether people should be looking for something else, I, I don't think that's really for me to say. I think if it has power to people as a description, then that's that's totally fine. It's funny you um you mention um you compare the kind of protagonist to the protagonist of Crash, and um, well, two things I suppose. Listening to you and George chatting about Ballardian, um, so in my in my I mean I've re- you know I've read um. I'm a fan, um, and I've read quite a bit of the stuff, though not a lot of it. And but what I um, when I think Ballardian, I think more of like Cocaine Nights, um, some of the later stuff, and I or um, 
kind of some of the images, I suppose, um, that are brought up in um, that are in Ben Wheatley's movie High Rise. So it's very different. And it's funny you mentioned the protagonist of your book being kind of similar to the protagonist of Crash with everything washing over him. Because I remember reading Crash when I was, um, I don't know, a teenager. And um, I, I mean, it was so strange and weird and alienating. And I think I mainly probably read it for the depraved sex scenes more than anything else. Um, but there's no, so disappointingly, there's, I don't think there's any sex scenes in Applied Balladianism. Um, but also, <laughs> your protagonist is, I think, fundamentally just much more sympathetic, though, um, rather than the um, protagonist of Crash, that there is, um, you know, there's somebody who's um, kind of losing their grip on reality and is um, struggling, you know, particularly. And I think you portray the kind of the crumbling relationship really well and really touchingly. So I didn't, it's interesting to hear you say, you know, Balladian kind of protagonist, because uh, it felt much less kind of alienating and strange than some of Ballard's protagonists. And Balladian, when I kind of heard the title, Applied Balladianism, it made me think of, um, of uh, yeah, you know, gated communities and the kind of um, the planned creepy suburban utopias, um, the thousand balconies facing the sun and all of that. And it's and it's kind of sounded um, that was the kind of images that that came to my mind when I was when the title first um, when I first heard of the title of the book. Yeah, so you're talking about those sorts of urban imagery is is what you associated it with. Yeah, is until I mean? until I I mean you know your book is um, you make I mean in the book you um, you kind of uh, root it more to Ballard's early work. Um, and the dystopian um, science fiction more than um, Cocaine Nights and some of the latter stuff. So it was just, it was interesting to me because it made me think of other things, I suppose, is all. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, um, I, I do talk about those later works as well, and I do sort of mention gated communities and the, the concept of micronations as well, um, because I think that is a, a really powerful element of Ballard's work. Uh, so one, one thing that I was... I always loved in Ballard's work or that always really stimulated me was that exploration of, of micro communities and, and gated communities and sort of communities that break away from from the world and form their own rules and uh, designs for living. Even in Crash you can see this where the protagonists are completely enclosed by the motorway system. They don't really go beyond its bounds they treat it as this discrete world that they interact with that has its own rules um so the gated community aspects of cocaine nights and so on i think is is really important to the book because uh because as a travel writer uh, i studied the well i wrote about the phenomenon of micronations so you may have heard of places like Sealand and so on, uh, which is the world's most famous micro micronation. So these are people who've set up patches of land or abandoned areas of land or whatever it might be. In Sealand's case, a gun platform in the North Sea declared it an independent country. And whether that's legal or not is not really the issue. But the fact is that they felt this need to sort of secede from society. And I always found a very strong parallel between micronations and what's going on in Ballard's work as well, where people do, in Ballard's work, do in effect secede from society. And in fact, it literally in one case in the story, um, The Enormous Space, 
uh, someone actually does do that. Um, so I, I think that's a really strong element as well, and uh, it, it does come into play in the book, and it, it's really sort of important to understanding the, the themes of the book. I may not have answered your question, but uh, no, no, no. It's um, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up micro nations because it was one of the most intriguing um, thoughts in the book. I, you know, political thoughts in the book. I thought was the link you make between um, the need, the kind of the feeling of lack of control, um, yeah. and the way in which, um, particularly in the era of globalization, micro nations an attempt to secede from society, but also an attempt to assert some kind of control. Um, so I thought it was, you know, actually fascinating and made me um, made me particularly actually want to read the travel book you wrote on micronations <laughs> as well. The other thing that really um, that I really that was really intriguing to me and interesting to me was some of Ballard's predictions. So, like I say, I mean. Um, I think, I mean, I'm a big fan. I read the novels. I've read some of the short stories, but I wasn't really familiar with um, some of the specific predictions, I think, from, I guess, short stories I hadn't read or essays I hadn't read. So you mentioned some of them, the um, phenomenon of um, social media. So I predict that we'll eventually reach an era where this is before the age of social media and Instagram and so on. But he predicts that we'll eventually reach an era where we become our own TV channel. It'll kind of collapse in on itself and we film ourselves and form our own programming through ourselves. And that that's effectively, that's effectively, I mean, particularly Instagram. And I thought that was just the idea that it's like your own TV channel filming yourself. I thought it was kind of, it was completely brilliant and made complete sense. And then also mm -hmm. the idea that the future in contrast to the kind of 1950s um, utopian um, moon base kind of, cowboys and spaceships and rockets future vision of the future was the idea the future will just be boring like suburban kind of mediocrity ad infinitum i thought that was just brilliant and that's like um and that is like uh there is an element of being a visionary there not just an accomplished writer on ballard's part mm. Yeah, I think those predictions are, are quite extraordinary uh, actually i think the the one that you mentioned about um, social media, I, I see that as a sort of predictor of, of YouTube. Um, and I, I, I think it is a really extraordinary prediction. And every time I read it, I'm quite blown away that he was saying that. And I, I think the first time he was saying that uh, was around 1976 or 1977. Um, so it, it was quite an amazing thing to say. Um, the I think some of those interviews, he, I think you may have quoted from one with Ballard where he's talking about that. He he does sort of put a semi-positive spin on it and say he's really looking forward to the results and so on when people have the technological means and the processing power to be able to beam movies of themselves to each other. But there's also a short story of his called The Intensive Care Unit, which came out in uh, around about 1977, which which talks about the very negative aspects of that and ends up with um, people who can't really interact beyond their screens. So, again, a sort of really sort of prescient prediction and that people become really anxious or really suicidal when they're not in front of their screens and not talking to each other through their screens and so on. And so that story is really quite extraordinary as well. Um, but it ends up with everyone slaughtering each other because they can't handle any sort of unmediated reality. 
Um, but I think these predictions that he was making, uh, so what? what is it? It's about 40, almost 50 years ago. Uh, they're, they're amazing, but I think they derive from his very deep understanding of, of, of societal and technological trends uh, that, that are happening in, in the present day. Um, some people mourn the fact that Ballard moved away from writing sort of what you might call straight science fiction into stuff about the present day when he moved into things like Crash and Concrete Island, which I still consider to be science fiction. They're not really set in the future, but they're um, they're providing a very strange slant on present day events. So they're looking at the at the present through this very strange uh, canted angle, if you like. Uh, and so I think what Ballard has always been really brilliant at doing is saying, well, uh, I, I write a form of science fiction, but it's not about the future, it's about the present. And he's really in tune to the things that are going on in the present day. Uh, almost like a, a I, I guess a, a, a philosopher, if you, if, if you might call him that. Uh, and so really, uh, and so those things about social media that he was talking about, he was looking, he was extrapolating the sort of implications of, of VCRs and people, you know, becoming uh, really obsessed with VCRs and, and, and videotape and so on. So when he was making those predictions about people will be one day have their own home studios, they will be uh, beaming movies to each other. They will have their own private networks. He was really thinking about the sort of uh, where the end state of that sort of obsession with VCR technology might take us. And though, although he wasn't sort of, you know, he obviously not Nostradamus, he can't see that we've got smartphones and so on. What he's describing is a sort of, you know, the extrapolation of a psychological trend. And that's what's, I think that's what's really brilliant about his insight. And if you look at... Um, uh, I don't know if you've read much of William Gibson or you're a William Gibson fan, but William Gibson is essentially, uh, in in his sort of recent interviews, he's saying, "Well, I'm, I'm, you know, he's being asked about why he moved from science fiction to writing about the uh, the sort of present day or extra, slight extrapolations of the present day." And, you know, his answer is always that, well, what's going on today is so weird that how can any science fiction ever hope to predict the future? The future is changing on a, a daily basis and our conceptions of the future are changing on a daily basis. And science fiction is always going to be left behind when it's trying to do that sort of predictive stuff. So Gibson is trying to, um, in, and this always reminds me of what Ballard uh, said in his interviews about his work, is that he's trying to do that similar thing of trying to really uncover what's going on today and making these sort of slight near future extrapolations of that. So I think, you know, I, I, I love William Gibson's work, but I can see, um, you know, I can see some similarities in the uh, approach there. You make, um, so you make quite a bit of the fact of um, Australia and being um, Ballardian to some degree, and particularly Melbourne and the outer edges of um, Melbourne's kind of urban road network and the rim lands, the kind of unusual um, in-between spaces on the edges of Melbourne, of the city. Um, I've never been, but I mean, I was, um, I was really taken, I mean, really kind of evocative and striking descriptions of the city. Um, and also particularly kind of certain encounters um, with um, that you or the protagonist has with various characters that remind him in turn of Ballard characters. And then you come up with a, you call it, uh, or in the book you coin a phrase for them, you call them a mutant species, Melboria moronica, <laughs> which I thought was, it was just 
it was hilarious. And there's some of the moments, like um, when he's uh, when the protagonist is in, um, I don't know, like um, small like corner shops and ending up in fights with these com- with drunken weirdos. The completely brilliant, brilliantly kind of recounted moments. Um, and I wondered if you could maybe talk a bit more about how Melbourne um, captures some of captures some of these themes for you and what it is specifically about the city. Uh, well, first of all, I should say Melbourne's actually a really beautiful city. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a lovely place to live. Uh, I, I, I do. I'm very fond of, of Melbourne, um, but it does have this. I guess it does have this edge to it, and the edge comes from it's, it's, it's a car city, like Greater Melbourne if you include all the suburbs and all the affiliated towns and so on, is one of the largest conurbations in the world. It's absolutely massive. Um, and the only way to get around it is by car. So uh, there's a lot of freeways, there's a lot of new freeways being built, and there's a lot of car culture. So if you've seen Mad Max, the first Mad Max, I you know I sort of make the, the joke in the book that Mad Max is a documentary of life in Melbourne. It's not a fiction film because there is, um, you know, for a long time in Melbourne, uh, the only way to get around was by car. If you weren't in a car, you were ostracised, all of that sort of stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot of violent car culture. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a cyclist. I, I, I talk about this in the book as well. I, I cycle a lot around Melbourne and I've encountered a lot of aggressive behaviour from from drivers, um, you know, uh, unprovoked by me. Um, when you say when you real, say it, violent when you say violent car culture, do you mean um, just the interaction as a cyclist or do you mean more than that? Well, I I, I think that <laughs> my observation as a cyclist is that it reveals some kind of late, latent psychopathology in drivers. It seems to some drivers in particular seem to be very offended by the sight of a cyclist on Melbourne roads and will <laughs> actively um, make your life difficult. I mean, I've had things thrown at me, bottles thrown at me as a cyclist. I've been tried to run, uh, people have tried to run me off the road, all of this sort of stuff. Um, it hasn't happened a lot recently, um, but there were a few incidents of that nature which fed into what I talk about in the book about this sort of Mad Max car culture in Melbourne. And, of course, that's obviously very prescient to crash in, in you know, Ballard's crash, not in the sense of the violence, but in the sense that when people are in the car, they're insulating themselves again. So they're putting on this sort of exoskeleton they're going out and nothing can intrude into that. And if people do intrude into that, like a cyclist getting in your way for a few seconds, uh, unleashes this sort of, um, yeah, this uh, psychopathology. And to me, that's very Ballardian. And to me, it's very it's very Melbourne as well. Um, there's, there's a lot of road rage in Melbourne. Uh, there's a lot of sort of so-called hoon culture. Uh, which is, you know, it's a, I don't know what you call it in England, but it's 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 basically people in hotted up cars, you know, doing drag races in the street and that, all of that sort of stuff. We have it in our street all the time, actually, where I live. Um, you know, there's a lot of that sort of fetish fetishization of cars and so on. So, uh, I, and sorry, I'm so not. Ju- just, and 
I just want to say that I'm not sort of judging this one way or the other. The only time I judge it is when it impacts on my life when I'm a cyclist. So, yeah, I, I so just one, wanted one to... thing that um, just um, just to quickly pick up on is, um, sorry, George, is just the uh, this kind of you talk about when so they try to regulate kind of all the problems. So in the book, you recount how kind of Melbourne municipal government, they try to regulate all the problems they have on the on the cars, um, on the roads with the cars and um deaths from um, uh, traffic accidents and so on. And in the very way in which they try to regulate it and um, kind of propagandize against um, car culture or against the violent kind of aspects of car culture, they end up glamorizing it and um, drawing attention to the kind of the thrill and the danger of the road. And I thought it was kind of at once um, tremendously, uh, kind of tremendously striking and also um, tremendously kind of interesting how it's kind of um, the, in the very in the very effort to suppress the kind of problem associated with the car culture, they end up actually um, reaffirming it. Now, is the way I understood how you, when you, when you say how kind of um, the Australian, you know, the kind of government productions of road wars and trying to kind of, uh, you know, knock down deaths on through, through yeah. dangerous driving, it ends up looking like a mad, something from Mad Max. Well, that's right. I mean, well, well, let's face it, driving is exciting. I mean, I, I say I'm a cyclist, but I, I love driving as well. Um, you know, I, I, I find driving, you know, it's a really exciting thing to do. <laughs> so uh, I, I sort of see the, the thrill and the glamour of it as well. Um, but I think, I think, yeah, so what I was trying to get at with those public safety advertisements that I grew up with in Australia, they were really violent. They were like full-on road horror car crashes really quite confronting but they were shot in this very visceral way the editing was amazing you know you're really in the driver's seat as they're coming headlong towards a truck and so on <laughs> um they're, they're really quite amazing productions they did remind me of mad max but i guess the point i was trying to draw out in the book was it's about you know it's about the entrapment of hyper capitalism where you you you're being, you're having your death projected at you in these uh, productions, but you're also immensely thrilled at the same time. So there's sort of no way out of this, you know. It's it's sort of this endless feedback loop, and I, you know, I draw I draw connections Ballard and Baudrillard and Virilio, and Virilio in particular talks about how in every technological advance there is the there is the accident, the underside. So when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. This is what Virilio says, and when you invent the car, you invent the car crash. You know, these things are inescapable. They're, they're intertwined and they can't be separated. So the car for all it's done for society, for all it's helped us to get around, all of that sort of stuff, it's intertwined with, with the car crash, which is still an ever-present in our lives. And, yeah, I, and I think all of these people, they share this fascination with this blurring of boundaries um, in which you're the sort of agent of your own demise. And that's what I was sort of trying to draw out with these road safety ads. Yeah. So just a quick question, I guess, on um, the suburbs, which you, you know, which which you um, mentioned just then. And I guess the relation to car culture as well, because it seems to me that car, the car like car crashes and road rage are particularly suburban pathologies in in some ways. And. I think sort of in my opinion suburbs are often left out of of science fiction um depictions of of the future you know they're not they're not um exciting enough and this was prompted by um a recent visit a couple of weeks ago to Shepparton which is where uh, Ballard lived for for much of his life and you described this um of 
southern England, this suburb of London, essentially is a place that's underwater. It's also the subject of one of um, Ballard's stories. And it's, a, it's, it's weird. It's a very normal place. And it's not I'm not kind of sure where where an author like Ballard should live, but not in this kind of very small town English um, kind of very normal place. So, yeah, I guess I guess the question is what what the role of um, kind of the, the the suburb as a as a, a, a place in in sci fi or in or, or in the in the book itself, what role you think it plays? Uh, in the well, I guess in 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 my book, um, the suburbs are a site for for those dynamics of, of what I was talking about before. I think. Uh, I mean, I, I I live in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. It's completely different to what Shepparton is. Mm. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot more concrete for a start. Uh, I've I've been to Shepparton a few times, and when I went there, you know, from reading Ballard's interviews and his descriptions of suburbs, I expected this sort of concrete dystopia, and it's Shepparton's nothing like that at all. It's a you know, it's a nice nice green town. Yeah. Um, but I think that. Uh, yeah, so I think Ballard was indulging in a bit of artistic license when he was sort of running down Shepparton in interviews. As he's, you know, he used to call it the paradigm of nowhere and all of this <laughs> sort of stuff. Um, but I, I, I think Australian sub- suburbs can be quite, um, quite uh, confronting in the sense that because Melbourne is so big, uh, the the outermost suburbs are really apart from the centre, so they are sort of these sort of micro worlds. Mm. Um, and again, it comes back to that sort of gated community aspect. But um, I guess the role of suburbs in in Ballard's fiction, for a start, is you know they are this sort of, I guess, a blank slate where where social life begins again, or removed from the centre or whatever. Uh, and it's sort of, sort of really, you know, Ballard talks about um, uh, there was an interview with him. I I, I think it's in the eighties where he, he said, yeah, "I've just been to." Dusseldorf and I see the future and the future is going to be boring and he, he spoke about the suburbs of Dusseldorf as being these very well-ordered well-manicured places where nothing is out of place and uh, you know um, there's a great line of his where he says he, it's almost as if you have to get up in the morning and kick the dog you know just yeah. to affirm some sort of life you know to do some sort of deviant act to, to break out of this so I think in his work with suburbs rightly or wrongly, I think, you know, he's, he's right to a certain extent. They do have this sort of conformity in them, but in his books it becomes this sort of robotic nature where people are struggling to <clears throat> to, to break free. It's a, it's a boredom aspect, um, you, you know, boredom uh, being, a, I, I guess, a kind of form of social control in his book and the sort of reaction against boredom. One of the um, – so one of the things you pick up on early in the book and – isn't um, directly tied, in, I mean, in some ways tied more to William Gibson, in fact, than to Ballard. But um, you talk about the death, you kind of recount um, the death of cyberculture and the collapse of all the kind of, um, the collapse of all these promises of emancipation and freedom into um, this kind of sleazy, weird libertarianism and hippie culture and how um, repulsed and disappointed you were by all of it. And I was wondering if you could. So, I mean, I was um, I was kind of vaguely aware of it, I suppose. I was a bit too young. I was still at school. Um, but I was wondering if you could maybe um, talk to us a bit more about that moment, uh, where you were at the time, what you what made what made you see it in kind of a moment of decline and collapse and how you relate that to 
I mean, how that's included in the book. Oh, well, I think um, I think cyberculture was very was very glamorous at the time. I mean, you know, led by William Gibson and Bruce Sterling and those sorts of authors. Um, not not that I'm saying their books were glamorous. They were, you know, obviously Gibson's books had a heavily dystopian aspect to them. Um, but there was a sort of surface level uh, glamour to cyberculture the imagery associated with it, the sort of rock star aesthetic that it generated in magazines like Wired and 21C and um, Mondo 2000, uh, you know, the, the the visuals of it, the sort of psychedelic fractals and all of that sort of stuff. It was a very sort of glamorous movement to my, well, to my mind. I was, I was young at the time. I just started um, uh, my PhD and, um, in around the mid '90s, when cyberculture was sort of in its sort of golden age, I guess, but also on the way out, it was starting to wane a little bit, and I was quite seduced by all of that—the uh, promise of living in virtual worlds, you know, all of that. Uh, the internet was was well, the commercial internet was still very new. I just started using the commercial internet, and I was um, very struck by all of that and the possibilities with that. But I think the sort of in the book, uh, the protagonist is sort of worn down by, I guess, uh, what what cyberculture became and what it sort of petered out into, which is a heavily surveilled internet and an internet where privacy is non-existent or where you're tracked and controlled. And I think that you know, I, I'm you know I'm online a lot, but I am extremely jaded and enervated by by the internet and uh you know i feel sort of shackled to it um and i don't think that was the sort of utopian promise of of early cyber culture so it's about really you know looking at the internet as central to cyber culture and then what the internet has become and um i think uh, yeah that's really the heart of that tension in the book you mentioned earlier um kind of boredom as um, how Ballard analyzes boredom as a form of social control. Um, and the other thing you also bring in is um, his in the book is his insight into consumerism as a form of social control. And in particular, and I mean, I suppose that's you know that's a, that's not a um, that's not a insight that would be unique to Ballard. But um, what was particularly interesting was one point that he makes in particular, in which you pick up in the book is the idea of um, consumerism as a form of um, political affirmation. It's a kind of, as a way of voting on our contemporary order. I wondered if you could explain that a bit more, because I thought it was absolutely fascinating as an account of consumerism. Well, I think um, what well, well, Ballard's final novel, Kingdom Come, is all about that sort of idea. Um, and the book was sort of, received with a lukewarm reception at the time but i think it's been re-evaluated since and people are starting to uh, see its merits um you know ballard uh, ballard said towards the end of his life and around the time when that book was was coming out that he believed you know consumer uh, consumerism was one step away from fascism so um i guess what he I guess what he meant by that was that, as you mentioned, this, this boredom and um, this, this 
deep-seated boredom that people are feeling and something is coming along and mobilizing that. Um, and in the old days, it may have been a dictator or a very powerful sort of figure like that. But now for, for Ballard, thesis was that consumerism is mobilizing that boredom and turning into turning it into something else um and you know it's undeniable that donald trump for example is selling something as as president rather than actually governing um and so for ballard all of this sort of stuff is tapping into these same deep-seated needs and the same rage and in inadequacies that people feel and that same sense of boredom and mobilizing it into something that they can believe in you know that's really that's really the essence of of kingdom come and it's you know it's it's quite a wild it's quite a wild book um it again has that micronational element people barricade themselves into a shopping center and turn that into a sort of micro republic and start worshiping altars of tin goods and all of this sort of stuff so it's it's really a sort of um you know a sort of uh, high satire sort of take on that idea of consumerism as as fascism um but yeah that that's essentially what what ballard believed in 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 that book one thing i mean it's um you uh, you pick up in the book as well about um the ballard's in, uh, identification of reagan as a politician selling a style um, rather than policies and I thought that was, um, again, kind of just fantastically, I mean, I wasn't aware of it before I read your book, and fantastically prescient um, grip on how, on what politics would increasingly become, um, the selling of style rather than the selling of substance. Um, but anyway, I guess moving on um, to maybe uh, maybe moving on to um, our last set of questions, uh, I wanted to talk a bit about this idea of theory fiction. Um, which is how the book is um, built, and I don't know if this was um, if this this was kind of your um, uh, if this was kind of the publishers tagging it, or if you um, explicitly conceived of the book and pitched it in this um, in this um, particular framework. But it's um, so it seems like a new kind of genre. And what struck me, I suppose, about it is that it seems like. In the book, you recount the intellectual exhaustion and collapse of um, cultural studies and um, various forms of postmodern social theory completely and um, uh, kind of in an academic deadlock. And you recount Ballard's own criticisms of those intellectual movements. So I was wondering maybe if theory fiction is the way to break out of it. Um, and this is the this is a way to kind of uh, revitalize some of those insights in a new intellectual context. Because I think you, I mean, if this is what theory fiction is, if the book is theory fiction and you conceived it in that way, then it seems to have genuinely broken new ground and shown new possibilities for how we might think about some of these ideas. Um, well, I I didn't, I didn't conceive of it as theory fiction. In fact, I didn't really, I hadn't really come across the term until I became associated with Urbanomic, the, the people who published my book. And Urbanomic is um, uh, is uh, led by Robin Mackay, who's an uh, who was a friend of Mark Fisher's and uh, was at Warwick University with Nick Land. And as I understand it, the idea of theory fiction from Robin's perspective came from the work that Mark Fisher and Nick Land were doing, where they were talking about perhaps breaking theory into a new realm. But it wasn't really 
It wasn't really the conception that I had when I was writing the book. I wrote, I, I have to say, I wrote the book in this way because it was the only way I could get it out of my head. Um, the, the book originally started, uh, it was actually commissioned by Mark Fisher for Zero Books when Mark Fisher was at Zero Books, and it was meant to be a sort of straight adapta adaptation of my uh, PhD thesis on Ballard. And I, because I'd sort of, I was sort of had one foot out of the door of academia at the time, I was really struggling to get back into that way of writing, the academic way of writing, and I was having so much trouble with it. I just could not, I couldn't start it. I think I spent about three years on the, the first chapter. And then eventually I, I, I'm really sort of struggling to remember the, the point where it tipped over into this other form. But at some point, something in my brain broke when I was trying to work on this academic style and it tipped over into this sort of narrative. And I sort of thought, well, I'm having so much trouble writing this. Uh, I'm going to try and write about a protagonist who's having trouble writing a thesis on Ballard. So that's where that sort of idea came from. But I still wanted to, I still, I was still vaguely hoping to break into academia. So I still wanted to sort of break aspects of my thesis into the book. So parts of the book, actually especially when the protagonist is giving a lecture or whatever and he's talking about ballard in the book but some of that speech is lifted verbatim from my my phd so uh i guess there's that aspect and i guess the the theorizing as well that comes in the book and the sort of speculations on the world and technology whatever um the theory aspect of the book uh, it sort of comes from from the narrator trying to work through all of these contradictions that he's feeling in his life um, and uh, it also comes from his disgust with theory as well. So um, his disgust on the one hand with his inability to become a theorist, but also his disgust with what cultural studies, because that's what I studied and that's what the protagonist studied, uh, has become in the sense it's become this sort of toothless discipline, doesn't really exist anymore. And I think he's trying to work through why that is in the sense that, well, you know, we live in a very chaotic world at the moment. It's The, the planet is, is chaotic. You know, in Melbourne, I'm seeing the effects of climate change up close, as I mentioned. Well, uh, I think I mentioned it earlier, but we're actually living through very bad air quality at the moment in Melbourne, you know, from the, from the bushfires and so on. So we're living in this world where all of these are things are really upfront and in, in our face, uh, you know, the, the, the chaos coming out of the Trump presidency and so on. And so what can, I think, without directly referring to those events, it's a similar dynamic in the book and that the, the protagonist is thinking, well, what role does theory have? Why be a philosopher or a theorist? Um, how does this change anything? How does this how does this divert the chaos in any um, remote way? Mm. So it's about that. Um, it, that's that's a really sort of strong dynamic. And then that that theory coming into fiction was was I guess when I look back on it, although I wasn't really conscious, the the melding of fiction and theory I guess is comes from that dynamic and trying to bring theory into something else where it may have more exposure or it's more accessible or whatever, and then has a hope of sort of I don't know getting in people's minds. So maybe after about 200 pages, it, it struck me that one sort of way to read what 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 was what was happening in the book is that it's almost a kind of um, critique of, of one way of doing cultural studies where you try and find this thinker who solves all the problems and does all almost does all the thinking and all the kind of the work of, of, of studying culture for you. 
um was this was this and i think your sort of assertion in the in what happens to this narrator is that if you do this you'll find everything is too is a kind of over connected and it might make you uh kind of lose your grasp on reality was this uh, was this deliberate or am i just reading uh reading too much into it about finding a thinker who'll do all the thinking for you yeah because i think uh, that's that's kind of one of the approaches of maybe yeah. some yeah. strands of contemporary cultural uh, studies is here's here's somebody they do they you know you don't need to yeah. think anymore because they've solved the uh the riddle of culture <laughs> well well yeah i guess i guess to an extent i mean the protagonist alights upon ballard as 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 a sort of uh spiritual mentor if you like and someone who can show him the way through this chaos um and and i guess in a sense do that thinking for him because he does interpret the world through that balladian lens but i think where he comes undone is because i think that um for me one of the strengths of ballard's writing is that it's 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 really resistant to, in some senses it's quite resistant to interpretation uh, so people have varying, there's a lot of wildly different interpretations of, of what Ballard's books mean. And um, you can see this um, in all of the academic volumes on Ballard. You can see it on the internet and so on. People have very, very different interpretations of, of what Ballard's books are about. And I think that that sort of open-endedness and also he's, he's flirting with, with genre and the way he breaks down genre as well, I think gives is one of Ballard's strengths. And I think that, but but I think that open-endedness is where it trips up the narrator because he starts to make it in, mean anything at all. And like you say, he goes down this rabbit hole. He's drawing all of these connections between all these different things. And that's all bequeathed to him by Ballard, who's teaching him to see this world with these sort of open eyes and that nothing is real and anything can be made real and it's it's dependent on how you, you, know, how you look at it or how you're being sold it. But that does him in because he can't make sense of anything then. But I think that's a really important strand of the book because it's about these sort of open-ended realities that we find ourselves in and where nothing has any meaning. And how do we create meaning in such a world? Uh, I don't really have the answer to that in the book, but it really is a struggle. And so he's being fed all of these, you know, all of these uh, virtual worlds through TV, through, you know, ads, through whatever it is. And he's he's struggling to make sense of it all. And in the end, I think what, if anything, my book is a sort of ringing endorsement of conspiracy theory because I think that um, you know the protagonist sees himself as a sort of conspiracist. He has all of these wild conspiracy theories about how things are operating. But cons conspiracy theory is really about constructing your own story of the world uh, because you don't believe in another story, whether that's through your psychosis or whatever. But that's what he's doing. The protagonist is really trying to weave a story about the world that makes sense to him uh, and makes sense to his disordered mind and what he's going through. And he's joining the dots between anything and everything. And, you know, that's what a paranoid conspiracist will do. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, in a sense, Ballard's characters do that as well. I think that, you know, there's an element of conspiracy theory in Ballard's characters because they are joining the dots between all of these things and constructing their own narrative. You can see it very cl clearly in a book of Ballard's like Atrocity Exhibition, which was a, a, one of the major influences on my book. But the protagonist is, is taking all of these cultural inputs, putting, um, you know, sort of treating them like, as in Ballard's words, in, as the elements of an autopsy uh, and trying to piece together a narrative. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's really about that. If it's about anything, it's about that loss of meaning and how do we, how do we make sense of it?